Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Believe in Sparks, presented by betonline.ag. I'm Sydney Weiss. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. We're available on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, iHeart, and TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com and at Believe Sports. Thank you so much, Sid. We are just ahead of the WNBA draft presented by State Farm, which will take place on Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. So we had a chance to catch up with the WNBA commissioner, Kathy Engelbert. We're also joined by other members of the media, and we begin with an opening statement from the commissioner. Thank you, everyone, for joining this call today. I am um, reflecting uh, a year since we had our last virtual draft, our first uh, in professional sports. And I just really want to thank you all for your ongoing coverage uh, of the WNBA. I know you were all probably watching the NCAA Women's Tournament as much as I was this year. And so much excitement around this incoming draft class, their, le- their level of play, their talent. I mean, I was just so pleased to see on full display and over the past few weeks. And, and we certainly look forward to welcoming, welcoming many of them into the WNBA. Um, but this season, as you're already aware, we just issued our schedule and 25th season for, for the W. And I mean, this milestone couldn't have come at a more pivotal moment Um I think since I've been at the league, it seems like the momentum for women's sports has only continued to grow. And now coming off a tremendous season last year in our so-called bubble, we're poised for uh, success and growth. And uh, I couldn't be more pleased with how things are going. And earlier today, as I just mentioned, um, we announced uh, we're tipping off on May 14th. Um, We'll be announcing our TV schedule in the coming weeks. Very excited about that. And much like last season, though, we're still navigating through the coronavirus pandemic. Um, we're still seeing injustices. Um, you've seen, uh, you know, the, what's been happening in Minneapolis, the shooting in a suburb over the weekend. Uh, you've seen the trial going on. You've seen, you know, the Asian American and Pacific Islanders hate crime. So, you know, all of that's still going on. So we're still monitoring and, and helping our players and our staff deal uh, with with that. But I want to say that I can't be more proud of the, the WNBA and the WNBPA Social Justice Council. This was, as I said last year, not a one and done, and they have continued to lead important work in their community. Um, you know, and this year, I think what we'll be seeing is the players are going to be focused on health equity, given that we're still in the pandemic, and civic engagement and voting rights, so especially impacting communities of color on both of those topics. So. Uh, we'll have more to share regarding our social justice efforts as the season gets underway. And similar to last season, um, I was hoping we wouldn't have to be working through all the protocols of, um, because of COVID. But, you know, we've been working with public health officials, medical experts, um, a little bit of deja vu, although obviously we know a lot more about the virus and the vaccine is providing hope. But um, so we're working with the Players Association as well and teams to create a plan to safely conduct our season amid this pandemic. So um, we're excited about the ability to return to our home market. So we'll be in our 12 arenas, um, but we know we need to stay vigilant to minimize risk as much as possible. So we're working on, you know, a different set of protocols than we had when we were in the bubble. So um, you'll be hearing more about that. And, and as we head into the season, you know, we launched our Calment campaign, which has gone really well. We unveiled the new Nike uniforms last week. Hope you all saw that. 
you know, the new Wilson game ball and more. I, I just want to thank, you know, everyone that make it possible. You know, one of the things we did that you may have read about that we formed the WNBA Advisory Board, and that was, you know, to get some of the pioneers of our league who were around 25 years ago and since then to help us continue to think through how to build the momentum. Uh, I always want to shout out also some of our outstanding partners who I said, like, if we don't have them, we don't get all this done. Our marquee partner, AT&T, our inaugural WNBA Changemakers, AT&T, Deloitte, and Nike, our draft partners, our presenting partners, State Farm, Associate Partners, Beach, SAP, Microsoft, and New Era. In fact, I still have some of the signs in the room I'm in right now where I did the draft from, from our presenting partners uh, and associate partners from last year. So, you know, really appreciate those supports. And I, I never can forget about our team owners, um, you know, their ongoing support, um, both, you know, monetarily as well as the support of our players and our teams. And, and, and we have new team owners this year with Mark Davis of the Las Vegas Aces and Renee Montgomery, Larry Gattestino, and Susan A. Bear of the Atlanta Dream. So we're really grateful for their interest and investment in our league. And, of course, players, coaches, staff, who once again will participate in a season unlike any other. We're obviously having calls again to answer lots of questions related to the stand-up of the season um, and speaking of the players, you know, we saw yet another off-season full of player movement from Candace Parker to Chicago to Natasha Howard to the Liberty, Chelsea Gray joining the Aces. So going to see a fair amount of new, uh, new faces in, with new teams. And I think with the upcoming draft picks, um, you know, we're hoping for lots of great storylines. And I know you all help us tell those stories. So, um, so again, you know, the 25th season is upon us, um, draft Thursday night, uh, and then uh, tip um, about a month later. So, but thanks again for your support and coverage. After this message from our sponsor, more with Commissioner Kathy Engelbert. Bet online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Bet online has you covered for all the new scores and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Hey, Kathy, Doug Feinberg, BAP. Um, I have two questions for you. The first one is, are we expecting fans in attendance when the season opens in the 14th? Okay, so first question on fans. Um, uh, yeah, so in, I think it's right now nine of our 12 markets, but we're negotiating on a, on a fence because you have to negotiate locally as well with local health officials. Uh, I think in nine of our 12 markets, we'll have uh, the ability to have fans. It'll be reduced, and we're hoping, you know, as we go into the Olympic break and come off of that, maybe we can have more full arenas. But, um, yes, we're going to start with about three-quarters of the fans. Just what can you say anything about the testing protocols? I think camps open up the 25th. I'm guessing they need to start getting there sooner for testing purposes. Yes, very good. You've learned from the bubble last year that there will be a testing protocol before they get into the market and then leading up to group activities. So they'll be able to do individual workouts during kind of an initial quarantine period. Um, and and then um, you know we'll uh, start group activities on the, the uh, on or about the 25th. So if all goes well, of course. So um, yes, yeah, so there'll be uh, a whole regimen, and it'll be different whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. So fully vaccinated, we'll have a shorter quarantine based on the guidance we've gotten from our experts and in the CDC, and 
uh, unvaccinated players will, um, you know, have to uh, comply with the longer protocol before you. But we'll ask all of our players to get into market so that we can start group activities for all, um, you know, on the 25th. We'll hear from Barbara Barker with Newsday. Yeah. Hi, Kathy. Um, I thought it was a pretty powerful piece that you uh, wrote on WNCA.com a couple of days ago. And I just wanted to ask you if, if you know, you had to think about now after two years, you see clearly the disparity between, you know, men and women's sports and, the, you know, dealing with the media. And I just want to ask you are, you, are you surprised after spending time at a corporation which seems to value diversity that sporting world seems to lag so far behind the rest of the corporate world? Did you see it that way? Yeah, Barbara, uh, excellent question. And for those that don't know, I wrote, you know, opinion piece on, you know, it is kind of, Barbara, my observations now, I'm like 20 months in the role. Um, and, you know, given that there was a lot of discussion around the NCAA situation between the men and women's tournaments, but, you know, that's why I wanted to grab the narrative away from that and, and just give some of my insights and observations being in this role now and being in sports, coming to big business and, uh, you know, a lot of similarities, but there are some differences. So, um, so I, I'd say, you know, some of the things did not surprise me. Other things do, like the media, uh, you know, the media rights fee gap definitely surprised me, which is why I focused in the opinion piece on that, because that doesn't make sense to me. And the only thing that could make sense is that the evaluation model underlying the way those media rights fees are calculated between the women's sports and men's sports is much too flawed, right? So, because even in some cases where we have quantitative data that certainly supports and would hold up a media right to versus some of the men's professional leagues, um, you know, we're not, we're not getting that in the marketplace. So that's um, kind of was a bit of a, a observations from my 19, 20 months in this role, and then just a, really a little call to action as to what the real issue is here um, and make sure that people are focused. The real issue here is the... Uh, statistics that I stated in that piece, and particularly around the media rights we got. Our next question will come from Hannah Whittiam with Just Women Sports. The WD draft seems to be offers a reminder every year that how much talent there is out there and how so few these players make the league with the number of roster spots. Have there been any discussions about WNBA expansion and what would that take for, for it to happen in the near future? Yeah, so thank you, Hannah. Um, it, it's an important question, and I, I mean, I think we probably have a, a much more uh, developed answer if it hadn't been for the pandemic and not having fans last year and limited fans this year with an Olympic postponement into this year. So lots of moving parts, obviously, to make sure we have a successful season this year. But as I've mentioned, expansion is certainly on the list of things I've been thinking about on the road. Um, you know, it is interesting to, to note how competitive and how deep the talent in this league is. Uh, and so it, it's certainly something that as we get out of this pandemic, hopefully next year, uh, that we're prepared to start, you know, talking about. But, you know, right now we're still focused on the transformation I talked about last year. You know, we had a little bit of pause in some of those activities because of the pandemic and trying to get the bubble done last year. But, you know, I think if we have a very successful season this year, um, this time next year, we can certainly start talking about what expansion would look like, how many, and the time frame over which that would occur. Next, we'll hear from Kareem Copeland with the Washington Post. Kind of almost off the kind of going down the same vein. I know this has been a, uh, a big topic since the um, NCAA tournament 
Um, a lot of talk about expansion and, you know, early entry also. And I'm curious, I know how everything is set up now, but just curious what your overall thoughts are looking down the road and what your feelings are about um, having early earlier entry, um, had taking, you know, having a bigger place in how the league and how the CBA is constructed. Yeah, thanks, Kareem. Great to hear from you. Um, I think it's great to be having this conversation, and it really sees the evolution of the women's game. And it was a great signal for the league that people are really talking about freshmen in the women's game and, and how they should become professional sooner. So, um, you know, I think it's great. And it hasn't been something, and I think Super said this in a recent I- issue, that, that, you know, maybe wasn't at the forefront of our discussions um, with the Players Association when we were doing the last CBA. But as with all topics, um, you know, we're running a player first league and we're open and willing to discuss you know, the current rule that's in place. Um, but, you know, again, it's something that that's what the players want to look at. We're certainly willing to look at it. But, you know, currently our, our rule that we negotiated on the current CBA is, um, you know, would not have freshmen coming right out of the U.S. college and university system into the draft. So, um, but certainly something, you know, as we evolve and as the conversation evolves, that I just think it's great to even be having the conversation. Next question comes from Charles Holm with Minnesota Spokesman Recorder. Wanda is that now we have reached 25 years. Have we reached a point where we're not talking about can the league survive or, or, or will it ever get further than this? And the second question is that we only have one black female coach in the league, and we're talking about a league that has a majority black players. So are we going to ever move forward than that? No, you haven't shown hiring, but we're moving forward than that in that aspect. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for your question. But, um, you know, certainly let me address the the last question first. Um, You know, this is something that I am totally focused on, diversity in hiring practices. It's making sure that we're helping build that pipeline of individuals who then would be, you know, in the running for these head coaching positions uh, or ownership positions like with Renee Montgomery. So I think we're making progress. I know it may not be outside in as enough, but I think we're building a really outstanding pipeline. And that's another reason why we wanted to re-engage with our legends of the league because, you know, those uh, players that played, whether it's 25 years ago or 15 years ago or 10 years ago, um, you know, and, and now that we have former WNBA players in the front office or coaching in the W, we have, we have Rebecca Brunson and Tamika Ketching, Stephanie Donovan, who works on my team um, as a former player for the Liberty and Stanford grad, Vicki Johnson, as you mentioned, um, you know, and, you know, Pearson and Quinn and, you know, Wright and Melvin. So, I mean, we've got a long list of, of, of players, and it was great to see former WNBA players like Don Staley and Adia Barnes in the you know, making history and coaching in their for their respective teams in the Final Four. So, you know, I, I think it is about a, um, a building a pipeline and making sure that when the next head coaching jobs become, when there's a vacancy that, you know, or in the front office. I, I mean, I definitely think we, we have to do better across the board, but I think we are making progress. Um, and now that I went on and on, um, your first question was, yeah, I would say, again, you know, absent the, the pandemic where, you know, we were trying to get from survive to thrive, that we've made a ton of progress. I think, again, as I said, the momentum around women's sports and specifically the WNBA in leading that movement uh, has has really pleased me as to the progress we're making. Um, but we, we can't let up. Um, so I do think we're in a thrive mode now. 
Um, but, you know, we still need to uh, have a fair amount of transformation at our team level, at the league level, and our digital platform and merch and, you know, everything. But and we're off to such a, a great, you know, start this year with the uniform on Val, the new ball, Wilson ball, and the Nike uniform. So, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot to come, and there's still a lot of transformation to be done. But I, I'd say we're, we're in the thrive mode now. And we'll have more with Kathy Engelbert after this. I don't sleep very well. It's super frustrating. I can't turn my brain off. I can't relax. And it's one of those things that, ah, it's just maddening. Fortunately, I found Sunday Scaries and realized they make products specifically for overthinkers and those who can't sleep, like me. Their CBD gummies help me decompress and clear my head and fall asleep so I can actually wake up feeling like a functioning human being. There's no risk to buy. The company offers a 100% lifetime money-back guarantee. If the product's not for you, that's okay. You'll get your money back. Sunday Scaries is in the stress-relieving business, not the stress-causing business. I got you 25% off to prove this. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code BELIEVE for your discount. That's promo code B-L-E-A-V for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. They're awesome, and you won't regret joining their squad. Howard Migdahl with the next as our next question. To jump off of uh, Hannah's question a little bit about expansion, I'm just wondering within the context of some things you touched on in your opening statement um, about the fact that there's a clear energy you know, behind women's sports in general. We're obviously seeing uh, a number of high-profile investors in uh, NWSL as well. So I'm just wondering, you know, less about um, whether expansion is something you'd like to see, more like have the frequency and quality of your conversations with potential new investors changed, and has that affected your thinking about how quickly and how much the league can expand? Yeah, it's a a great question, Howard. I, I think, you know, the conversations have definitely changed for the positive conversations we might have been having a year ago before we even hit the pandemic around where people were willing to invest in the league, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a media deal, or whether it's a, you know, a new owner of one of our teams. So those have definitely all moved in the positive direction. Um, the, the narrative we have coming off the 2020 season and the success not only on the court but off the court has really resonated with companies who are trying to support diverse workforces and to develop those and to be the next gen, you know, to develop the next generation of leaders. And there's no demographic like our demographic that will help companies uh, on that journey. Uh, and I think, you know, we're working really hard on activating with our current partners and bringing in new partners uh, around, you know, exactly how to do that and how to provide that platform to, to companies to come in and invest in us and get a return for their investment that is um, maybe not always captured by impressions and traditional quantitative metrics, but certainly in the diversity, equity, and equality space, inclusion space, um, the LGBTQ plus uh, space, the younger digital native space where we skew a younger fan than other leagues. So, you know, Howard, those are all the, the, the things that are attracting companies to us and investors to us. And it's definitely an easier conversation today than it was even a year ago, as I have seen women's sports and the momentum evolve. You know, but we still have to keep working at what I mentioned in my opinion piece is 
you know, the valuation model is broken and we had great conversations and when it comes down to dollars sometimes, you know, at least in my humble opinion, I'll call it. And now, you know, 20 months in, um, I, I still believe our assets are undervalued. Our narrative is undervalued. And I think it's just because the spreadsheets and the model and the algorithms are set up for a time in the past that hasn't evolved with the diversity, equity, inclusion of the future. And again, I had the corporate experience of seeing that evolve and, and seeing investment, even though you couldn't find the dollars to look at earn on that investment, but everybody knew it was the right thing to do um, because of investing in diverse workforce, because the demographics were such that you were going to be out, outside looking in on the work of talent if you didn't invest in diverse talent. And so, uh, you know, my goal is this call to action to have people support, you know, these elite assets so that we can get them to be the next generation of leaders or to be to the question earlier, the head coach or the next GM or the next front office or the next, you know, community leader or elected leader, you know, and that's that's kind of all part of the way I see this evolving. Next question comes from Michelle Vopel with ESPN.com. Uh, yeah, um, Commissioner, I, I was wondering, you know, I've seen a lot of the WNBA players work with uh, sort of vaccination awareness. Is there a goal to have all players and, and team personnel vaccinated by the time the seeds start? And could you also maybe talk about what you there have to learn and observe from um, the NBA and maybe even the NHL, other leagues that have, um, you know, had their seasons? outside of a bubble, so to speak, and, and how you can, you know, kind of uh, take some of the things that they've done um, and implement them in the WNBA. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. So first on vaccines, so yes, it always starts with uh, vaccine education, vaccine awareness, and then certainly there have been players who have already been vaccinated who are now, you know, uh, speaking out about that, you know, doing public service work around that. So uh, I think... Um, you know, of course, this is a personal health decision for each player and staff member. And it isn't just the players, if you think about it, the staff members, the head coaches, the GMs, everyone who will be around the players, the arena workers, the household individuals. So, you know, we're certainly um, working to make sure that everybody gets the education they need to make the health decision as to whether to get vaccinated. Of course, we think the vaccine offers a lot of hope for the the future of the protocols and, and the loosening of the protocols. Um, and so we do have, you know, different um, protocols if you're fully vaccinated versus not. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, one of the most obvious ones is what the CDC's already come out with, the quarantining if you're a close contact um, of someone who's tested positive. If you're fully vaccinated, you don't need to quarantine. If you're not, you will. And that would take you out of play if you're a player or out of coaching, if you're a coach or anybody in the ecosystem. So, um, so yeah, we, we highly, you know, recommend that understand it's, it's a decision um, by each player and each staff member. Um, but we are working to help teams um, provide opportunities now that the eligibility has opened up in almost certainly every state that our, our teams play in. Um, and as we get to training camp, you know, we, we'd love to um, – you know, continue to facilitate players wanting to get the vaccine, and that's what we're working on with teams right now. Uh, your second question, um, yes, I've been um, yeah, fortunate to have a front row seat at what, what's been happening in the NBA since December. And, I, I mean, I've just observed that in December they only had six arenas with fans, and now they have 21, I think, of the 30. So, you know, just looking at the fan protocols, how that's working, how fans are willing to come back in arena, tested, untested, where they sit, all of that, um, you know, not as close to everything the NHL is doing. I know they just had a big shutdown of, of the Vancouver Canucks there, but 
you know, certainly learning and observing uh, of all the protocols and just the evolution of it, too, because everything started out one way in December and it might have changed in January, February, and, you know, just monitoring again, I hate to say it, because I said it a lot last year, the trajectory of the virus, the rollout of the vaccines, the, um, you know, and, and determining, you know, what the best format is in R12 arenas, which obviously are not necessarily the same as an NHL or NBA arena, uh, and just, you know, trying to, to have the best protocols to keep our players and staff uh, the safest, including, again, household members as well as arena workers. Hi, it's Michelle Keller from Hoopseed. Um, going back to the draft a little bit and um, looking at the number of players, the stream number of players who probably won't even make it to opening day or some won't make it to training camp, and uh, looking at next year when we're going to have these players who stay here come and come and want to uh, be in the draft. Have you have there been any discussions of any way to keep uh, these young athletes in the pipeline somehow and not not lose them and uh, maybe do something along the lines of what the NBA is doing to keep these players uh, motivated to uh, want to play and stay engaged with the league? Yeah, uh, it's a great question because we do know we'll have um, bumps along the road like the NHL and NBA and others have had who have gone back into their arenas. Um, and, and certainly, you know, we'll have a set of protocols for players being called up. Um, you know, there's also a longer-term thought as to, you know, whether you would have a pipeline of players who don't make a WNBA team because of the depth of our league right now. You know, and, and you know, 3X3 will be Olympic sports this year. Is that opportunities for players at the next level below the WNBA players to, to stay and, and to train and you know, around that that format of the game, I don't know. But, you know, there are some longer-term things that we need to think through uh, to make sure that we're providing. I mean, there's 5 million uh, youth girls playing basketball in the United States today, uh, and obviously only a very small subset of those will make it professionally, just like in the men's side as well. So I do think we need to do, you know, do some more longer-term thinking about development, about, um, you know, what we're doing already in junior UNBA, and her time to play. So we do have a lot of programs for youth as they get into the collegiate levels um, and the professional levels. But, you know, and again, expansion might help that down the road someday when we start adding teams. But for now, uh, I think we're definitely, you know, hopefully going to have protocols for call-ups should there be injuries or COVID, um, you know, issues in the league this year. Next question will come from Tam Spirillo with the New York Times. Um, as you know, Rick Welch retired last week from the NBA, and I've noticed in his career retrospective that the WNBA is not mentioned at all, and he won an award along with Val Ackerman uh, for helping to market the league in its early years. So I want to know if you have plans to include him in any of the 25th anniversary celebrations. Yeah, Tam, and thanks for the question. It's a great question. Rick has was part of launching the league when David Stern coming off the 96th Olympics with Val. Um, I think he also has huge passion for the league. He is actually on our advisory council. So Rick is one of the people that we're already getting that um, perspective from around what we're doing, not just in the 25th season, but beyond. So absolutely, Rick. Um, I've talked to Rick several times. Um, right before the pandemic, I was out, you know, at a, at a really interesting um, and, you know, trying to get to know Rick a little bit because I knew he was such a historian about the league as well as, you know, an advocate for the league. So, yes, Rick, Rick is already engaged with the league in, his, in, in our uh, advisory council. 
Next, we'll hear from Raphael Haynes with the three-point conversion. There's been a lot of talk um, for the last few weeks, you know, going with Draymond, Draymond Green and with the WNBA players as far as how he felt and some players, whether they agreed or wanted to enlighten them on what's going on. But do you believe that just to have that national talk, that talk and the, um, on social media and now it's up, everybody's in it, do you think that can be beneficial towards the league or for the league as far as the company investing? Yeah, so so it's a good question. So certainly having that national uh, dialogue around um, the disparities is, again, one of the other reasons why I issued the opinion piece to kind of put them um, in context, again, from my experience uh, so far in the league. So, um, you know, I, I think having that dialogue, and, and we're always happy for NBA players or other professional athletes to weigh in on their observations and We've had other NBA players weigh in as well. We've had huge advocates of the league from the NBA. So I do think having the dialogue is healthy. It's a healthy part of what players do on social media, right? I've had to get used to that a little bit coming in from the business world where that didn't happen as much. But, um, yeah, I, I think that dialogue is healthy. I think we've got to, you know, look at all the different perspectives of the way people see us outside in, inside out, and, you know, determine what the best way is to market our players, to grow the league, to – you know, look at um, how we bring investors into the league, how we, you know, look at teams um, and, and their operations, how we transform our digital platforms. So we're always open for all feedback. And, um, and yes, um, having a national dialogue around that is always welcome around the WNBA. Next, we're here from Sarah Valenzuela with the New York Daily News. I was curious, going back to the back to draft stuff, is there anything that you learned from last year that you plan to bring in for this year? Is there anything that's going to be different as far as the virtual draft running? Um, any kinks that you guys worked out from last year? Uh, great question. So, um, Because I'm doing this call from the draft room in my house, so the one thing we're not going to do is do it from my house this year, so I will be at an ESPN studio. And um, and so my kids won't have to be handing me the jerseys that I was, you know, ironing the night before <laughs> and uh, all the stuff we had to do. So we'll have a much more organized professional. And I think ESPN did an amazing job last year because you didn't see all that behind-the-scenes stuff in my house. But I'll be happy to be in the studio with lots of support this year. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's the good news. Um, um, but, you know, certainly the moment that um, we call the, the draftees' names, you know, would I love them to be there, come up, you know, to the podium? Yes. But, you know, given the long NCAA season, the protocols, the last thing we wanted to put these players through were more protocols to come to a live draft. And, and so, um, so I think we learned some things about how to interact with them. We learned some things about making sure the technology holds up and works. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I think it'll be uh, another uh, great production by ESPN. They've been such a great partner since the beginning of the week, 25 years ago. So really looking forward to it. And um, there'll be some special elements um, in the draft, including, you know, having Tina Thompson involved, a, a legend. So I think last year we didn't have much opportunity to do that, but we had, you know, with the death of David Stern and Kobe Bryant, those three young girls, we had some special moments. This year we'll have special moments that are just different and, and um you know, hopefully, you know, and with the players, you know, um, also, you know, uh, being engaged and involved in, in all the stuff we do around it. We're going to do a virtual carpet and things like that. So there's some exciting elements to look forward to. Our next question comes from Eric Wilson with the Sports Arena. 
with the way how the world is going currently, and I know last year with, the, with being in the bubble in Bradenton, you know, teams took a stand with regards to social injustices. Are you prepared to do that again this year? And uh, what will be done should an unfortunate incident occur? Yes, a very good question because we just saw the results of that over the weekend. And I, I think I mentioned, you know, the Social Justice Council um, now that's in place that was just kind of new last year. But now I think the players really look to them and we've been meeting over the course of the off season as well. Uh, and so I, I think we're in a better position to make our players, you know, feel that they're continuing with their strong voice, with their strong platforms. Um, and again, their focus this year, you know, for instance, on equity, um, on civic engagement and voting rights, um, you know, just so proud that they just continue to find the right issues at the right time uh, to, to advocate for. But, you know, complex issues out there in this world, and, and there's a lot of divisiveness still out there. So, I mean, as, as events. Um, unfold. You know, we've got to stay close to the players. Hopefully we build trust with them last season with the support and amplification of their strong social justice platforms. But, you know, ultimately the players want to be about change and they want to have their hand in that in that change. And I think, you know, whether it's civic engagement and voting rights or health equity or other issues that many of them are passionate about, um, you know, I really look forward to seeing what they do this year and, and handling any crisis that come our way, which I think, again, if you look at what the players accomplished last year when faced with multiple crises at one time, you know, I'm hoping they get a little break because this is a heavy burden uh, on the players to carry, you know, their messaging and their powerful statements that they've had about, you know, being women and women professional athletes and, and being, you know, even beyond the, the sports. Uh, landscape. So, you know, again, um, we'll obviously be in, you know, cl- stay close to them about how they're thinking, how they're feeling, how they're impacted by, you know, country and world events and, and work through those with them. And I think, you know, the good news is like we built a lot of trust with them last year and hopefully, um, you know, they'll, they'll turn to us and make sure that, you know, we can continue to, um, you know, commit with them on driving this meaningful change that they're looking for in their community. Good afternoon, Eric Fisher, Sport Business here. I uh, was hoping you could uh, speak to the uh, Minnesota Lynx ownership transfer that may be in place here where your role um, runs alongside what the NBA is going to do vis-a-vis the Timberwolves. If you've had any conversations yet with uh, Alex Rodriguez or Mark Lohr and sort of the overall commitment to the Minneapolis market long term. Yeah, so um, as with any transaction of a transfer of ownership uh, in any of our leagues, certainly the Timberwolves and, and the Lynx, who, you know, Glenn Taylor, Glenn and Becky have been such great advocates and owners, and the Lynx have been such a successful franchise and a powerful franchise uh, in our league. So obviously we're uh, involved in, um, you know, obviously getting information on this unfolding story over the weekend about potential new ownership over a two- to three-year period. Uh, and obviously there's these approvals that will be required both on the NBA and the WNBA side, including the WNBA Board of Governors. And now we're getting kind of good at it because we just did two of them um, here in uh, the, the mid-late winter. So, um, yeah, we'll go through the whole process. You know, happy to talk with the potential new owners, but we're not quite there yet for me to be talking to them. You know, there's there's still an obviously negotiation of the terms uh, of the deal, uh, et cetera. So, you know, happy to uh, certainly talk with 
uh, the potential new owners about the vision of the WNBA, where we're going, where we've been, where we're going, 25th season, and, you know, the momentum. And, and I think there's a great story there where the Minnesota Lynx fit into that um, into that story because they've been such a successful franchise and, and have an outstanding leadership team um, and an outstanding uh, team. Our next question comes from Jeff Magriochetti with Empire Sports Media. I have uh, two questions, one on the court and off the court. First of all, the WNBA was able to get some good off-court things done from a centralized location last season. How can the players continue to use their voices upon the return to markets across the nation beyond the Social Justice Council? And could you possibly shed some light on the Commissioner's Cup, which is set to make its debut this year? Yes, Jeff, thank you for those questions. So, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting that, um, you know, you had a whole league in one place centralized last year. And I think as a result, um, there were certainly advantages and disadvantages of that from a, a personal perspective. But I think the biggest advantage was um, all the off-court stuff where the players could gather together, whether it's just through their team or, or the entire league at one time, which, which was pretty amazing. So um, I think what we'd like to do this year, obviously, is continue to work with the Social Justice Council, but also... Um, you know, I think the players are really looking forward to getting back to, you know, even if it's reduced fan bases, getting back to their fan bases, getting back to their communities in which they work, right, because they don't necessarily live there on the off-season, although some do, and, and really get, getting back to engaging in, you know, youth and fan engagement. Um, and, and so I think that will be important. And I think they'll take the themes that they're going to be focused on around health equity and civic engagement and voting rights into their communities and feel a little more connected to it this year as last year being in Florida in one place, they might not have felt connected to the community as closely as, as they would like to. So I think that'll be an advantage this year to get back into their local communities where they can really do community work um, and, and, and they feel like they're making a difference. Um, so um, that, that's uh, that question. On Commissioner's Cup, yeah, we're really excited, and we'll have some forthcoming details. We're going to do that kind of in a separate release, forthcoming details before the season tip around the Commissioner's Cup and, and how that format will work. Um, but we're really excited to have designated Commissioner Cup games. There'll be themes around there, which will have kind of a representation and a quality theme around it. Uh, that'll be activated locally in each of the 12 markets. I'll be kind of you know, back on the road traveling, you know, to visit each market with the Commissioner Cup game. And then coming off the Olympic break, we will have the Commissioner Cup final as the retip of the season. So, again, we'll be back with more. We want to kind of, you know, get some uh, marketing lift out of uh, how cool that's going to be. Um, you know, first year, you know, we'll learn some things, we'll pilot some things, we'll innovate on some things, and we'll see what works so that we go into next year, hopefully with full fan arenas and really engage you know, further on it, but really looking forward to that one. So in a couple of weeks, uh, a lot, lot more will come out on the Commissioner's Cup. Next, we'll hear from Nick Hamilton with Nightcast Media and Sirius Ekman. Uh, obviously, this is a huge year with the 25th anniversary of the WNBA, but what are some of the things specifically that you would like to see improve as it pertains to the WNBA's marketing? Okay, so um, great question because this, as you know, has been a big focus of mine on um, you know, any season, but let alone one that has the importance of a, of a 25th uh, season and a 25th anniversary. So I think some of the things that you've already seen, new uniforms, new ball, uh, new logo, you know, brand, merch, um, and also, you know, we're hoping to 
you know, uh, launch some second screen experiences for fans that won't be able to come to arenas. Um, that'll be a big part of it. And again, because we're a player first league, you know, we want to make sure we're continuing to uh, market around, you know, the player's highest priorities. Um, and, and that'll be in the social justice space and in the health equity space. So, um, so again, we'll have, you know, commissioner's cup will be an element. Um, we will take that break during the Olympics. So we're going to have to, you know, uh, really work hard to make sure that conversation while our Olympians, both for the USAB women's national team going for the seventh consecutive gold, as well as we'll have several other Olympians for their other national teams. So keeping the conversation going during that break will be an important part. Cause I think when we come back, we're going to have a ton of momentum commissioner cup final into the regular season push to the playoffs. So I think once we get, you know, to the Olympic break, I think, you know, uh, things will, will run quite well and we'll be able to, you know, really drive rivalries, household names, uh, player performances. Um, and it's in this first part of the season with the new uniforms, being back in one for the first time, you know, in a year and a half, um, and, you know, just continuing to, to, you know, capitalize on the momentum locally in the community with the fan base. Okay. Oh, Nick, you said it, I think Nick said he had a second question. Oh, sorry about that. Um, quickly, uh, you talked about diversity. Obviously, we're going to lead in diversity. Uh, we talked about storytelling as well. But are there any, what do you see as far as black media outlets and black owned media outlets having access and being able to really tell the stories of the WNBA being that the, the league is 75, 80% plus black? Yeah, we would love um, to have more um, coverage. And certainly we absolutely welcome that. So um, we're also working with our teams on engaging with local black, small to medium-sized businesses. I know some of our teams are already doing a great job on that, but making sure that we're continuing to, because of our diversity and because being 80% women of color, um, we absolutely are open and we'd love to talk, you know, uh, with anyone and welcome further conversations about how to engage with the leads, with the teams, with the players, because, you know, our players would be fired up, and they were fired up last year when we did some things in the bubble using black-owned businesses, and they, they just they love that, you know, we're focused on that. And, you know, it's got to be part of our diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, uh, efforts and initiatives. And, um, you know, you got to walk the talk, and that's what we're doing. But we would love, you know, more black media and absolutely welcome uh, all of that. Thank you. Our next question will come from Erin Barzilai with her hoop stats. My question for you is around um, the broadcast uh, that are going to be coming up, the broadcast deals now and in the future. I understand you're not going to reveal any details at this moment, but I have sort of two related questions. One around how you think about the trade-off of being on more traditional cable networks like, for instance, CBS, Sports Network last year versus some of the newer all-digital platforms that you hear discussed, uh, you know, anytime sports is negotiating media rights, uh, the pros and cons of that, and then... Secondly, is one of the focuses you've been uh, kind of negotiating these deals and looking ahead, sort of making it easier if you're a league pass subscriber to be able to actually watch the games on your TV as, a, as opposed to just on digital devices such as your phone or computer. You know, if you think about the NBA model, you can subscribe to your provider, cable provider, and watch the games both. You know, I navigating to a higher number of channel as well as uh, you know watching on your computer and whether there could be an opportunity to uh, do that uh, going forward. Thank you. 
Yeah, great questions because one of my uh, things when I came into the league was to take a look at our digital platform, including lead class and other things. So let me do your trade-off one first on the more traditional network. So, you know, again, we've got great partners in ESPN and CBS. We've got um, Twitter and Facebook Oculus, um, but we're definitely looking at the digital platforms. We've got inventory, what they call inventory of games uh, that could be carried nationally. So we're working on um, you know, pulling together uh, the packages and looking at the pros and cons of those digital, emerging digital platforms or those that are, are already here. Um, but, you know, again, ESPN and CBS have been great part of ESPN since the beginning, CBS more recently. And then just um, I'm very interested in looking at our fan data, looking at, you know, how many of our fans are more digitally inclined, are digital natives that are you know, only going to watch on a digital platform. Um, we've got some data on second screen and how even if uh, a fan is watching it on television, they're also engaging, or you see at games, they're also engaging with their second screen called their smart device. So you know, there, there are pros and cons to all of that. But, you know, your first question is a little more integrated into your second question than we may all realize. In five to ten years, we're going to looking back and saying this is all integrated. And so I think as you look at um, we are making upgrades to lead paths, but it's something that, you know, we're going to be really focused on our digital platform. And by the way, I can already, because I have Apple TV, I can already watch my lead paintings through Apple TV through the WNBA app. So there are ways, even in our old lead pass uh, format, to do that. But I will I will take, um, you know, your digital device versus can you still stream it on your TV through your cable provider back and make sure that we have, we're building that capability if we don't have already. But um, you know, I do know, you know, as we look at our demographics of our fan base that, you know, we're going to have to have our game on all of these platforms because I think, you know, everybody wants to watch live sports from wherever they are, on the go, sitting at home, in a car, on a train, on a plane. Uh, I mean, I actually watched um, the Final Four. I was on a plane coming back and I watched um, the Stanford Final Four game, um, you know, from the plane because that plane happened to have direct TV. So I was fortunate that I was able to watch it on the plane. So, again, we recognize that, that our fan base is going to want to take the friction out of the experience, whether it's your lead pass or, um, you know, on the digital device. So, you know, I, I've got all that on my list and um, uh, happy to share more once, you know, we continue the transformation of our digital platform. Hi, Kathy. This is Jeff Brown, Cascadia Sports Network. Um, so kind of going back to uh, expansion, um, obviously there's kind of two types of expansion. There would be new teams possible and then um, so roster expansion. And I believe the NBA allows for at least 15 players per team. Um, and I was kind of wondering which type of expansion would be more likely to happen sooner. And are both of those uh, options tied to the CBA? Um, or could you envision them um, expanding before the end of the 2027 season? Yeah, so I think um, the roster expansion is tied to the CBA, but it's also tied to the economics and the salary cap and everything that's been negotiated. I think we're in a very good place. But, you know, that, that's certainly something probably in the next CBA that could be talked about. I think we're about right size for now for the – size and scale of our game with our current rosters. Um, and so, you know, again, comparing it to the men's side is a little misleading because, you know, shorter season, 
fewer teams, things like that. So I, I think the roster expansion is probably further down the road in the next CBA, whereas, you know, on new teams expansion, as I said, um, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years we'll be talking about, you know, the different cities where we think a WNBA team could thrive uh, and what that would look like and how many teams we expand uh, by and, and, you know, when. So uh, I would think that comes before a roster expansion because, again, I think we're probably about at the right level right now. Hey, Kathy, Jackie Powell with the Max. Thank you so much for taking the time. I wanted to go back a little bit to the discussion of social media and digital activation. And so in light of what you all are doing when it comes to draft night and even the influence that social media had on the NCAA tournament that you saw from Sedona playing on TikTok and a bunch of others, I'm wondering if you could talk about what you believe social media's role has been in the growing of women's basketball in the past few years. Yeah, uh, Jackie, excellent question, I think, because if you think about the, even the evolving digital landscape and uh, um, what's considered premium content, um, you know, and it's not just on, you know, cable networks, it's also – you know, if you think about um, social media and, you know, the platform the players have to go on social media, and especially as you're a little bit younger fans, what I call that younger social media platforms like a TikTok, like an Instagram, uh, and where you see the WNBA players with huge platforms and, and do very, very well, um, you know, as far as the, the number of followers and, and the you know, how they elevate their brand and market their brand through those platforms. So I, I do think that we're going to see a lot of that evolve over the next couple of years. I think um, we've got to stay nimble and agile, and I think for a league of our size and scale, we have the opportunity to pilot something with our players on those platforms. Um, you know, and if you just look at, you know, the numbers of, um, you know, the growing support, you know, for the WNBA players on these platforms. We're approaching some of the other major, you know, um, uh, men's professional leagues on how um, we show up on social. So I, I think there's an enormous opportunity, but we, we have to then match the uh, metrics to, you know, how those are evolving and how the influencers who then follow our players um, are influencing whether it's purchasing decisions, consumer decisions, and things like that, because that's what partners will ultimately want to partner with us, you know, to drive their business. It's not just it's the right thing to do, but they also a business objective for them. And I know that better, you know, than anyone has come in. So, so I think as we think of uh, a world in Snapchat or a world on TikTok or Instagram and how players are sharing their lives on there, I think there's uh, enormous opportunity for us to, you know, grow and grow through sponsorship and grow through uh, media deals because of that impact that these players are having on these um, on, in the social media world. Thank you. We'll hear from Chet Metcalf with Arizona Republic. Hi, Kathy. This is your first time going through the Olympic break. What, what's kind of your opinion at this point on on balance of it being a positive or a negative for the league, and then also you have more and more women uh, players, current players that are now working in uh, broadcasting during this off season at the local or national level. How much of a positive is that for the league? Yeah, good two great questions. This is my first time going to the Olympic break. We thought we were going to have it last year, and we didn't. So 
Um, you know, I think there are positives and negatives. I mean, a huge positive would be hopefully the marketing element of all WNBA players going to Tokyo, bringing back hopefully that seventh consecutive gold medal, which would be a record. Um, and also 3x3 um, you know, will be an Olympic sport this year in Tokyo. So, you know, it's all in how we activate during that break and make sure the conversation is going and make sure our players who are staying back are, you know, um, get some time off through the break, but also uh, are training and, and ready for uh, the tip. So I think there's positive and negatives, and, and the positives you can, um, you can, you know, amplify through, you know, strong marketing campaigns during that break. Um, as far as broadcast, I mean, I, I, I just, I, I think these um, players are amazing who come into broadcasting, uh, like Candace Parker, um, you know, um, other players who are former players like Elisa Leslie, uh, obviously Rebecca Lowe, you know, um, Renee's been doing some things, Shanae's been doing some things. Like, so we, we just, I, I would love to see more of it. Um, I think we will see more of it. I think, you know, every player has, you know, goals of theirs. Any of them do want to do, whether it's coaching, broadcasting, front office, you know, et cetera, as they come off their career. And one of my big, uh, goals has been to help players position themselves for their post-playing life because they'll have a long career, and I want them to ultimately be the next generation of leaders in business, community, broadcast, media, so that the next time we have to negotiate deals, we've got a player on the a former player on the other side where they get it and they know the value of supporting these elite athletes. So, um, great question. Certainly, we'll hear from Cassandra Negri with Yahoo Sports. Hi, Kathy. So TikTok was mentioned a few questions ago, but there are so many new fans because of what they were seeing because of inequality, and not a lot of them are big sports fans. The draft is huge for kind of that transition from college to the WNBA. So from your perspective, what's the importance of the draft, and what's kind of the biggest thing you want to convey for those young fans just tuning in? Yeah, so I assume you mean fans who were fans of the women's game in college because of a an association or a loyalty or a passion, you know, for their alma mater or their if they're currently in. And so, yeah, there's no doubt. I identified this when I came in. We need to do a better job of kind of getting those fans because the women's game is so popular at the NCAA level. Um, and you know, I was in some markets pre-COVID where I mean the women's game was outdrawing the men by far. So we need to do a better job of making sure we bring that fan in who was tied to the passion for the university or college into our game and have them follow those players that they were so passionate about that were at their alma mater. Um, and, and also, I think there's just a, a narrative out there as to, um, you, know, you know, whether it's a, a female fan or a male fan, you know, supporting this game and supporting the eliteness because we know that the quality of the game is so amazing. So once we bring a fan in, the fan stays. It's, you know, finding the right narratives, having the right marketing, building these household names and these rivalries. So the content and everybody, you know, wants compelling content is so compelling that they want to watch whether they're a sports fan or not. And I do think the social justice platform of the WNBA players has helped bring in a different level of fan into our game that doesn't watch the men's game or doesn't watch different sports, but they know what the WNBA players accomplished last year and they're still following them. And we see that in our fan data. So we need to make sure that we're keeping that fan. And as we tip this season, we're drawing them in and our marketing is heavily 
strategic in drawing them in and keeping them as fans and then building their loyalty to being a player, a rivalry. Thank you. Our final question will come from Chris Canelo with Nightcast Media. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the uh, the new ownership group that Renee Montgomery, former WNBA player, was a part of for the Atlanta Dream. And given what happened with Atlanta and really Georgia, the state of Georgia this past year, there was a lot of negativity just surrounding. I don't want to get into all of that, but how much of, of that was just a positive storyline, not just for the league, but for the state of Georgia and and really uh, the society as a whole. I just wanted to get your take on that and, and also. Uh, to implement the uh, aspect of diversity that you've been talking about so much about uh, on this call. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's a, a huge role model moment for Renee, who I think you know this really catapulted her into a true role model for future generations and current generations to um, really uh, aspire to. Because I always say you need to have you know something to aspire to, and and I think having. You know, as an owner with Larry and Suzanne, it's huge. And I just think it's um, hopefully going to help. Um, and I know it's already helping, you know, the uh, the community engagement, uh, the persistent Atlanta, the advocacy for the dream. Um, I, I think it's it's really changed the way that team's going to transform. And I think they have a ton of talent anyway, but I think having Renee involved and having new ownership in there is really going to change uh, the narrative on the support in the local community for the Atlanta Dream. So, um, you know, we're I'm constantly talking with the owners, including Ray, and I mean, she's just they love her already, and she is just already working so great on behalf of, you know, building this franchise into, you know, a, a winner. And I, I'm really proud that that Renee stepped off fresh off of retirement and now has is building another level of expertise to bring. Her, what we knew was already a strong work ethic and knowledge and understanding of business. And, and by the way, she's a great marketer, and I didn't know that. And um, you know, from a player perspective, that's great to see as well. And we're gonna, you know, really, I think Atlanta's really gonna benefit from from her her involvement and her ownership and and her leadership. Again, special thanks to WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert for that conversation and insight. She's she's awesome. I absolutely love her and everything that she's doing for this league and love watching this league continue to grow and do amazing things. Speaking of amazing things, the WNBA draft presented by State Farm will be on Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for all the information and action and news and notes and all the things. Where will these prospects land? We'll find out on ESPN on Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. We're available on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, iHeart, and TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com and at Believe Sports. Follow me at SwissBaby24 on Instagram and Twitter and Stacy at Stacy Pates on both platforms as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Believe in Sparks on the Believe Podcast Network. For Sydney Weiss, I'm Stacey Pates. This has been a presentation of betonline.ag. And God said he ain't gon' never gon' leave me, he won't forsake. Wow. Preach, preacher, I love it. Duck back, TV up to duck. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E 
AV on YouTube.